0: How we doing folks my guest today is going to be jeremy bloom jeremy is an entrepreneur philanthropist former college football all-american nfl player author and one of the greatest mogul skiers of all time as a football player bloom was an all-american at the university of colorado and played for the philadelphia eagles and the pittsburgh steelers as a mogul skier jeremy is one of the greatest of all time he's a two-time olympian three-time world champion 11-time world cup winner With 26 world cup podiums and juggled a lot of his success on the slopes while playing football at the same time as a philanthropist he founded the wish of a lifetime foundation which grants lifelong wishes to older adults jeremy also wrote the bestseller fueled by failure where he shares the most important lessons that he learned in hopes of helping others increase their chances of realizing their dreams jeremy is also the ceo and founder of integrate a venture-backed marketing software company in this episode we discuss not only jeremy's drive but what he does to manage his time and make the most of his day. I hope you enjoyed Jeremy's journey of failures and successes so far, and please make sure to like, share, and subscribe. Thanks, guys, and enjoy. Perfect. We're rolling. Jeremy, thank you for taking the time, buddy. It's great to catch Always up a little bit. Always good to see, him, see you, my man.
1: Always good to see you.
0: Yeah no it's uh it's been a long road as we were kind of just catching up uh beforehand and it was it was nice over the with all the bad things that have happened from uh quarantine a couple of the the good things and one of the things kind of took me a little bit to get to was uh this bad boy right here mm. he's finally able to to take some time get that um and it i there's so many great takeaways from that uh from that book and it's funny kind of going in and being a part and, uh, you know, kind of remembering some of those certain instances and, and stuff like that. But one of the things that I really took away and kind of stuck to heart for me was um, failing by not setting shorter deadlines that really like stuck out. And I was like, man, I fuck, I do that a lot. That that'll happen where I'm not setting the, you know, and I'll just be like, ah, I'm going to get to it. I'm going to get to it. And uh, it seems like there, there are certainly a bunch of takeaways from that book, but that really kind of st- stuck out to me.
1: Yeah, you know, writing the book was um, a fun adventure for me when, when the publisher reached out to me and said, hey, we we're interested in, in having you write a book. Have you ever thought about doing that? And, you know, if so, what what would you want to write about? And I've always been fascinated by this idea that everybody, no matter who you are, has moments of failure. Walt Disney fired from his first job for a lack of imagination. Steve Jobs fired from Apple before returning them to glory. Michael Jordan cut twice in high school. But why was it that those guys were able to deal with that adversity and use it as a catalyst to become world-class? And some other people experience that type of adversity and can never overcome it. They wear it, they own it. It, it kind of owns them. Mm-hmm. And so I wrote back to the publisher. I said, I want to write a book on failure. And, you know, it, they, they wrote me back in a, in a kind way saying, no, thanks. Like, you know, <laughs> nobody wants to, to read a book on, on failure, but, you know, I convinced them that, you know, this is not a book about failure. This is a book about winning. This is a book about how to become great at anything using kind of anecdotes from my life, through my journey of the NFL and in the Olympics, but also other people's uh, stories like, like the three that I, that I mentioned. And it really was a fun adventure. I, I learned a lot. The thesis of the book is there's a way to use the inevitable moments in our life where we don't accomplish our goals to recalibrate our compass to success. And I think that's what's most important is learning the skill and ability to use these moments in our lives that are gonna happen no matter what. Um, to better inform the compass of success, to learn from them. But to your point, you know, you mentioned the time frame to move on from them. We cannot wear these things. They do not own us. They aren't, they, they do not define us. Uh, we just have to use them to, to keep moving in life. And, and so, yeah, the book's called fueled by failure. Um, it's on Amazon and, and uh, it, it was a fun adventure.
0: Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great read. So it's a good, good holiday for uh, anybody out there to check it out. I would definitely, yeah. Uh... Definitely recommend it. But it's one of those things, you know, I had uh, Stephen Long, who I know uh, used for a time there. He was on the podcast and it was great to and to get his perspective um, and just listen to how when he's going through and and talking about goal setting and kind of game planning and coming up with those certain things, a, a, a lot of the different people I've had on have Total A bunch of different tactics, you know, uh, Hannah Kearney taking notes and writing everything down, making all kinds of lists and having uh, Nate checks as the CEO kind of having a two-week block of everything set out, you know, uh, CEO for Roan. And the interesting thing from uh, performance psychologist Stephen Long was just like, yeah, I'm pretty much now, today, and then tomorrow. There's a couple things I'll add in, but that's really uh, just that shorter kind of uh, focus on really tackling in the moment and and what you can take care of day to day.
1: Yeah. That, that sounds like a, a healthy way to live. It's not the way that I live. (laughs) (laughs) I, I wish that that was the case sometimes, but, but I also think my long-term thinking has all also benefited me, you know, in various ways. I'll give you an example. When I was 19, I I was um, an Olympian. Um, I was a world champion in skiing. Um, I just finished my college football freshman season at the University of Colorado as an All-American. You would think for, for a guy like me in 19, I would be kind of on top of the world. I mean, these were the two biggest dreams that I had, you know, play, play major division one college football and be, a, be, a, be an All-American and be a world champion in the sport of, of freestyle skiing that I love so much. But it, it, it was a good feeling. But, but there was this overwhelming feeling of fear. And that, that fear was, what, what's my life going to look like after football and skiing? Mm-hmm. We all know, you know, no matter who you are, athletics ends, professional athletics ends at a very relatively young age in the grand scheme of like the average lifespan of a human being. So we all go through this reinvention period. And it was that fear uh, and long-term planning that that ultimately led me to, to where I am today, you know, as a tech CEO and CEO. And a, um, a founder of a nonprofit, but, but I had to like pick up every rock along the way, mm-hmm. you know, I invested in things, you know, along the way, both from a mindshare perspective and from a capital pers- perspective that didn't work, but mm-hmm. all those paths led me to ultimately what was my transition. And if anyone were to ask me, like, what am I you know, most grateful for? Um, I'm, I'm definitely grateful for the success and the experiences, but I'm most grateful for the transition because I felt like in a very short period of time, I was able to transition uh, from being a professional athlete into a tech CEO and founder and, and a nonprofit founder. And, and I think it's rare. I, I think that's the exception, not the norm, because people get caught flat-footed.
0: Mm-hmm. People
1: get caught flat-footed. They think it's going to last forever and, and it doesn't. And, and one day you're, you're kind of um, in this new world where it's like, I don't have to go to ski practice. I don't have to go to football practice. You know, th- th- those things no longer exist. Now I have to kind of redefine and reshape my, my life and, and what it's gonna look like.
0: Yeah, kind of self, self-motivate there. I mean, one of the things you touched on it earlier that has always, and I've always been uh, aware of it and kind of just seen it being around you and everything else is just the curiosity. You know, you've always kind of, where, where's that curiosity come from? You know, I think that helps with kind of, as you talk about in the book, like planting those seeds and kind of having those looking under those different rocks and let's see what's under here. I mean, where, where's that curiosity kind of come? Have you always had it?
1: I've always had the belief that I'm an expert at none and a mm-hmm. student of everything, mm-hmm. you know, and in and, and that intellectual curiosity has helped me in a couple of ways in athletics. It never gave me a sense of entitlement. So when, when I raised, you know, made the USC team at 15 world champion, Olympian at 19, two-time Olympian at 23, three-time world champion, and then drafted in the NFL at 24 at the age of 24, I never felt entitled. I never felt like I made it. I always felt like I was chasing greatness and I never felt like I, I I achieved it. And it was that intellectual curiosity and, and I guess lack of, of feeling of, of achievement that drove me to continue to invest, to continue to work, to, to continue to do the things to, you know, that sometimes you forget to do when you're on top. You know, most people say it's easier to get to number one and harder to stay at number one um, because that, that level of success, you know, can, can be a bit of a drug in the sense of, you know, maybe I don't need to work out at 6am anymore, you know, or do the things that I, I needed to do in, you know, now in this new phase of, of my life um, as a CEO and founder, oh my gosh, I have, I learned things. I learned new things every single day. I started integrate nine years ago with an idea on a whiteboard. We're now over 300 employees across the, across the globe. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, uh, you know, big company, like
0: yeah.
1: hundreds of millions of dollars. And, it, and it's like, I, sometimes you have this imposter syndrome, like, wait, 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 I'm the CEO. Like, wait, no, who? like I'm not supposed to be the CEO. Like you, you, you go through these moments and, and what I love about it and this, the similarities between athletics and, and being an entrepreneur is there's always things to learn. There's always new things to learn. There's new people to talk to. There's new experiences to be had. And you, I don't believe you ever become a master. I, I really mm-hmm. don't. I, I just think you're always on this continual path of learning.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's super fascinating to me because I mean, just, I think that there are a lot of people out there that are just so into their field and they don't really want to branch out. And as you say, once the road ends, like you're caught flat footed, you kind of don't know the next step or, or what to move on to. And it's interesting, like that, that curiosity, uh, cause you've always had the passion for winning and the drive has always been there. Um, but I think that that curiosity is kind of a, a unique feature that, um, you is r- rare to find for sure.
1: Well, you know, and I, and I I think you've experienced this uh, a good deal in your life as well, and everybody does to some mm-hmm. extent. We, if we live long enough, <laughs> we all redefine ourselves. We yeah. we all go through this, you know, reinventions throughout the decades of our lives, and reinvention can be very scary because most human beings don't like the unknown,
0: mm-hmm. and
1: and I think that's a, a human quality that most of us have. Like we're scared of of uh, the unknown. I mean, we like predictability right I mean that's a very human trait so so those moments can be you know really scary in the sense of like gosh I don't I don't know what to expect like what's around that corner and and but at the same time there's this amazing amount of energy and inertia that's created from those moments in our life and if we can tap in to the signal and eliminate the noise, right? Yep. The, the signal is is kind of the compass. The, the noise is at all the surrounding things trying to push us off of our, our path. And we can really lock into what that signal is. Mm-hmm. I think it's the most meaningful journeys of our lives, these these pivotal and, and critical changes.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it's it's interesting too, to, to kind of, I feel like you have to make sure that you surround yourself with the right people that are willing to to be out of the comfort zone. Right. I mean, a lot of it, you know, being uncomfortable is like you say, it's not an inherently human trait. We're not like, Yeah, let's, you know, just continue with the nine to five or whatever else, like kind of bouncing around. It's, it's not fun. I mean, I remember as, when I've started this, I'm like 30 episodes in, but the first one was like, man, I sound awful. This is not right. I don't know. I just kind of like to talk. No, I'm not doing
1: all these like self-defeating thoughts that we, of course, you know that we, we always have. And, and, and you know, that's, that's just, really you know a normal normal quality of doing something new
0: so for you who have has like helped or who do you use to to kind of lean on when you're going out of these comfort zones and you're kind of a little bit uncomfortable like who who are those people that have kind of helped uh you along your journey and along the way gosh there's there's so many people Mm -hmm.
1: uh be impossible to to know know them all but as i reflect on you know my life i mean your your dad is right up there near the top Mm-hmm. You know, your, your dad was not just my, my ski agent for, for basically my whole, my whole career. Um, but he was one of my, you know, main go-to advisors. It was like, it was like your dad and my dad, you know, mm-hmm. like that was the list of, of people. And I have such um, a love and admiration for, um, for your dad, for, you know, everything that he has done for me and, you know, continues to do for me as, as a friend. Andy Carroll is a legend. Um, so, you know, he, he's, he's a guy and, you know, Bobby, I was really lucky in tech and, and, and I'll, I'll tell you why. I went, I was with the Pittsburgh Steelers, and but I was really at that point in my career. I'm like, okay, I don't, I don't think I, I want to do sports that that much more. I, I felt my mind moving on. That's not necessarily my, my body. I was what 26 years of age. I mean, I could have skied for many, many uh, more years. I mean, mm-hmm. most people find it somewhat, um, you know, ironic that I only skied four years of World Cup. Yeah, you know, 2002 was my first season of World Cup. That was an Olympic year, and 2006 was my last. Yeah. You know, and and so you know, most skiers ski you know 16 years or whatever. So I I was a you know around skiing for a very short period of time. Um, but I knew I wanted to move to to move on. So I, I went to the TED conference, and, and I didn't even know what the TED conference was at the time. You know, like the TED videos, and I was just like, hey, I heard you know really inspirational people go to this thing, and maybe I could you know find some inspiration. It's the first night of the tech conference. I know not a single person there. And I, and I sit down for dinner at this round table. This guy sits next to me. Happens to be a Philadelphia Eagle fan. His name's Chad. So Chad and I hit it off. We're talking about the birds. He, he's in tech. I'm like, that's cool. I said, where do you work? He said, I work at YouTube. I said, that's awesome. I like YouTube. And you know the table starts filling up. We're talking. And then you know somewhere around dessert, I said, what, what do you do at YouTube? He said, oh, I started it. I'm the founder. This Chad Hurley. <laughs> I had no idea, you know? And so Chad and I became really good friends. And before I knew it, it's like Chad Hurley. Mm-hmm. And next to him is Sergey Brin, the founder of Google. And next to him is Bill Maris, who built Google Ventures. And so I built this tribe like really early in tech of like people that I was starstruck to mm-hmm. be around. Right. But I would say one of my best qualities um, has been to be a sponge in the room. I love being a little bit in the background. Not talking a lot, but observing and just like being that sponge and to be around guys like that and to be a sponge of what they're doing, I mean, transforming the internet, transforming the world, these, these guys that provided an amazing amount of inspiration for me to get into tech and start a company. And these are still the you know guys and, and, and many other now that I call upon when, when I'm stuck, mm-hmm. when I need help, yeah. when I need advice and, and I'm super grateful and humbled to be able to do that and have these types of you know luminary figures um caring about what what I'm up to
0: now t- talking about being like a sponge for you is that is that like a few takeaways from the moment or is that cause I mean, it can be hard when you go through and, and, you know, like any book that I'll read or, you know, a lot of those different things, or you listen to an audio book, it's, it can be so hard to like, Oh, that's a good thing to remember. Oh, that's a good thing to, you know, like, okay, I'll write that down. So for, so for you, when you're kind of in the background and you're trying to absorb as, as much information as you can, is it like, all right, what are the three big takeaways or is it oh, you need to remember that get the iPhone out? Yeah. <laughs> You know, I don't know if I've ever
1: had an original thought in my whole life that shows you how dumb I am. Right. So like, so when you talk about like being a sponge, it's like learning through osmosis. And and I think the, I learned it really through my father, who's a psychologist. So at a young age, having a dad as a psychologist, it it, it taught me, he taught me to be introspective in the world, Mm -hmm. to analyze my surroundings, always know what's happening in my surroundings and read the environment. He used to say that all the time, Jeremy, read your environment. Yeah, and if I, maybe I was acting one way. Or... So from a very young age, I, I you know, he, my, my dad, Larry taught me to, to read the environment. And so, no, it's not just about like three takeaways. It's like analyzing everything. Like what's the demeanor? Mm-hmm. What's the energy level? What's the cadence of conversation? What are the questions being asked? I think mm-hmm. the smartest people in the world ask the best questions. smartest people in the world don't give the best answers necessarily the smartest people in the world i've ever been around ask the best questions and it's the questions that draw out the wisdom and extract the wisdom of others i'm not great at asking questions i need to get a lot better it's something i work on it's a hard skill to have but every once in a while i'll nail a really good question from somebody i'm talking to And I'll get more information, wisdom out of that person that I could have, you know, had in, you know, two years of MBA class or whatever. And so I think if you're lucky enough to be around greatness, if you're lucky to be around great people Mm -hmm. and you're thoughtful enough to build a relationship beyond asking them for something. And I built a relationship with Chad Hurley. I said, Hey, let me take you through an Olympic Lake circuit. I'll make you puke in five minutes. I guaranteed. He's like, yeah, bring it on. Well, you know. like maybe six minutes, but it happened, you know? So like, it wasn't me saying, Hey, Chad, I want to get into tech. Will you help me? It was like, Hey, let me show you a skill that I learned and, and, you know, build that deep connections. But I think if you're fortunate enough to be around greatness, like I have been able to do in my life, got a good, good chance of being great. If you pay attention and you listen and you
0: learn and you ask good questions. Gotta ask the good questions. No, it's one of those things though. And I think it's a fine you know, nine out of 10 times when I'm having conversations with different people and around them, you can just tell when the eyes glaze over and you know you're having a conversation with them. You're reading your like, environment. Oh, you're, just, you're just waiting for you to talk. All right, let's, <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll just be quiet now. And then, all like, right, what were you going to say? Let's, let's bring that out. <laughs> yeah.
1: No, that, well, that's good. That's part of reading the environment, reading your audience. The other thing that I, I really had to learn um, pretty quickly in, in technology uh, or, or being a CEO that I had no idea about in mm-hmm. sports is everybody likes to ingest information in different ways. And and I never knew that. I've been around football guys, Olympic guys and gals my whole life. That's kind of like one track minded people Mm -hmm. who are pretty similar in nature. And I was thrown into an environment where I had to communicate with engineers, computer scientists. Well, and I'll give you an example. Early days at integrate. I love big ideas. So like give me a whiteboard. I love being like, hey, this is how we're going to take over the world and I would draw these fun pictures, and I'd bring these things together, and I'd have one side of the room integrate, like, so pumped up, ready to rock, ready to run through walls to go change the world. And I have another side of the room looking at me with that, like, glossed-over look of fear. And I never understood it until I got certified to administer the Myers-Briggs. Myers-Briggs is a personality test to understand how humans like to ingest information and Um, how they like to, to, to deliver information. Mm -hmm. And it was at that point where I learned like engineers, not, not all of them, but a lot of them are sequential thinkers. So if you're communicating with an engineer or a sequential thinker, they like one plus one to equal two. And if they can't find a path to get to ultimately where you're trying to get them to, meaning one plus one equals two and two plus two equals four, um, you know, et cetera, then, then they have a really hard time ingesting the information you're giving them. So for me, a big idea guy, like I have no idea how we're going to get here. I just know this is where we need to get to sending that message to a bunch of engineers, stress them out. And yeah. I don't, I don't even think they really liked me. Right. Cause I was like this leader that stressed them out, <laughs> but I've had to learn along the, along the way. But I think it's a valuable skill for anybody mm-hmm. is when you say something to somebody, they don't always hear what you think they said. Right. And it's a great idea, especially with closer relationships. Of asking the question, "Hey, when I said that, whatever it is, how did you experience that? What did you experience me mm-hmm. saying?" Right, and it's right. it is fascinating to to hear like the differing things that people will 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 replay back to what you said, and oftentimes it's totally misunderstood.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, it sounds uh, honestly a lot like you, you're turning into a coach, dude, for sure. Because I mean, <laughs> it's one of the things I, you know, coach you. You can't have. Uh, just one arrow in the quiver, right? You have to be able to, each personality is a little bit different and you have to find a different way to get that light bulb to go off, right? Get this information to, to reach you correctly. And one of the main things when I'm coaching is uh, you, you got to communicate. I'd rather over-communicate than under-communicate and I can't fix problems I don't know about. So it, it is one of those vital things being able to reach those people and communicate effectively.
1: I mean, a spot spot on and and, you know, one of the conclusive data points as to why people stay at companies is because they're on a path of learning, Mm -hmm. meaning their direct report helps them learn and helps them solve questions or solve problems by asking questions, Mm -hmm. rather than telling them the answer. I mean, this is, this is innate in who we are as human beings. We, we actually do like to learn. Yeah. It, you know, and especially if we're open-minded enough to do so. And great, what do great coaches do? Great coaches help us learn, right? Yeah. Like, isn't yeah. that the the goal of a of a coach? I don't think of myself as a coach, um, although I'm flattered by by the comment because I think it's to true. me there, there's nothing better than a coach. Yeah. But I think of myself as a student of life, and mm-hmm. and there, there's topics that I'm I become fascinated with, and when I when I'm fascinated with something, I want to jump in like cannonball in the water. I don't want to like put my foot in and t- test the temperature of the water. Like I just want to jump fully in, immerse myself, read all the books, talk to people and, and, and try to, you know, try, try to understand whatever those topics are.
0: Now kind of jumping in and, and being able to, to immerse yourself, how do you tackle time management? Cause that's one of those interests, especially for you. I mean, you, um, with the wish of a lifetime foundation and the philanthropy, and then also run an integrate and, all the and then also your personal life. I mean, there's so many different things. How how do you kind of tackle uh, time management and not get overwhelmed?
1: Yeah, yeah. there's a, there's a lot going on in my life from a personal perspective to building a home to running a business to wish of a lifetime just got acquired by AERP. So integrating into a multiple billion dollar organization with 38 million members. Um, and here's what I'll say about it. Here's what I've learned. I think the notion of work-life balance is a fallacy. I don't think there's a balancing act. I don't think it ever balances itself out. So what I believe in and what I have subscribed to is work-life integration. And for me, the word integration is much more intentional than trying to balance something. Mm -hmm. And so what I do is I get very intentional with my time every, every week Fortunately, I have great people around me. I have a chief of staff who helps me operationalize projects and integrate. I have an executive EA who helps me you know, balance out my, my time and structure my time. And, and I really rely on a you know, big team to you know, do the projects that I don't think I'm the best suited for. So to be able to delegate, hey, this came to my desk. It's probably best suited for you. Mm-hmm. And to, so to be able to get good at delegation... And then just get really intentional with with time. And and this is something I would encourage everybody to think about, whether you're running a company or whether you're an athlete, whether you're not currently working, even if you're in school and the way that you do it, I like to do it on a Sunday. I like to look on a Sunday. I look at Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, my time. And I go over everything that I need to to do. And I've gotten to know myself uh, good enough. So I'm like, that's not going to work for me. That's going to stress me out or that's going to take away time from this. And there's a couple of non-negotiables in my schedule. Um, and the first oh, one gosh, is, is fitness. So from you know, seven in the morning till 930 um, in the morning, nothing can be scheduled. Now we have an office in London, and that's like the most convenient time for, for folks in London to, to, to connect. Um, but, but, uh, when I connect with the London team, it's at nine 30 mountain time. And there's a reason for that. That's the time where I, I got to take care of my fitness, man. I got to get on a treadmill. I got to, I got to get in the sauna. I got to sweat. I got to stretch. I got to do some meditation. Cause I know if I don't do it at that window, it's gone. I'm not doing it at five o'clock and six o'clock, the, the day just completely escapes. Mm-hmm. But it takes a lot of discipline to make sure that that time is completely you know, blocked out. Now there's, there's other variables for other people. I mean, maybe you, if you work for a company and you have, you have a call at seven o'clock, you can't tell your boss, I'm not going to be on that. Cause I'm working out. I totally, you know, totally get that, mm-hmm. but you can have the conversation like, you know, health and fitness or whatever it is. Time with family is, is a priority. And I think getting really intentional of how you fit those things into your schedule will reach a point. You'll reach a point where you feel like you're being efficient with your time, with your time.
0: Mm-hmm. So going in and make sure you're kind of attention uh, intentional with with your priorities. It sounds like as well. Got like you know, obviously for you, fitness is is a, a priority and and it gets those endorphins going. And then like, all right, bring on the the busyness of the day and and what's going to happen there. Now, one of those yeah, things I, mean, I wanted to touch on and I was curious about. I say you're on that uh, that Rogue uh, Assault Runner. Is that thing pretty sweet? Is that thing what right? is it? the the your treadmill you got there. woodway curve the yeah my curve is that thing woodway rigid? curve yeah. yeah
1: so what i love about you know i got into running about almost two years ago okay. uh, about a year and a half ago so i'm relatively new into kind of jo- the joggers world and and yeah you know, I, I love it for a lot of reasons but i never enjoyed running on a treadmill one because of the impact and two because you're running on a road that's moving itself so it makes it easier you know, like when you turn a treadmill on the, basically the road moves (laughs) and when you run outside the road doesn't move. So there's more friction and it's harder. Mm -hmm. And I found this treadmill called the woodway curve. It's kind of, you know, curved and you have to run on it in order to move it. And Mm -hmm. and so it's actually harder than running outside because it's at a curve and you're kind of running at a three degree angle. Um, and it's, but it's very low impact. Yeah. It's, it's been phenomenal for, for me. Um, and, and I, I believe that without health and wellness. And I'm not just talking physical, but I'm talking mental, all mm-hmm. kind of fully encompassing. Um, I, I don't think we can be good husbands. I don't think we can be good athletes. I don't think we can be good human beings. I think that's the, I think that's the center of the universe is like our health, our physical health and our mental health. And so I believe in ma- making sure that we take care of that first. If we do that, then what I think can happen is we become great employees. We become great family members. We become good spouses, you know, because we're taking care of ourselves. So Mm -hmm. that's my priority set. And if I were to ever work for somebody that said, well, I don't care about your health and and wellness, I'd quit. And I don't care how much money I was making. I don't care how I'd find another boss. Like, you know, Mm -hmm. if if you can't understand that, that that's, that's, you know, should be a priority. And if you can't work around that, then it's probably not somebody that I would want to work for
0: no absolutely yeah i've been i mean i've been watching on uh, on instagram and we chat a little bit back and forth and and the one thing that uh i really was able to take away is is not only i don't know if you've got a chance to read matthew walker's why we sleep but uh, oh that's have one I, of the bi- that's yeah <laughs> <laughs> that has been uh, yeah fantastic that was uh annoyingly to everyone in the family last year, that was all their Christmas presents. Uh, I think everybody <laughs> Oh, was, that's a great Christmas. Yeah, that was everybody's Christmas. I think my brother was, yeah, he was definitely a little pissed off. Like, dude, I got kids. I don't have time to sell. I'm like, yeah, you got to make time, man. You got to make some time to get some sleep. <laughs> it's all about priorities. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely. and the other thing is, is a little bit of fasting. You know, this summer I did my first, uh, I did a, a 182 hours you water only, which was, uh, which was good. And I know that, uh, You've done a a couple of those and, uh, it, it, it definitely, um, it's amazing to see the difference in, in focus and how the body adapts and changes. I feel like those, that first two or three days, you know, like 72 hours, you're kind of a little bit hungry. And then when you wake up that next day, it's like, okay, you're kind of just go into a little bit of coast mode and, and the focus mentally is pretty, uh, pretty incredible. I feel like. Uh, I love the topic. So we could talk about this topic for the next 10 hours. So I was like, I
1: love the topic of fasting. I actually found I got myself into fasting out of necessity, not because of out of, you know, uh, vanity. Um, Something, you know, weird thing happened to me, Bobby, like when, when I, I don't know, 35, I was kind of 35, 36. My digestion has always moved very, very fast and like very efficient and felt like, you know, like food in, food out, let's go as energy. And it's like my digestion just stopped. It was very strange. And I, you know, I would eat and I would get, you know, my stomach would get bloated. I'd feel like things weren't moving in there. And I tracked it back to a couple of things. Obviously, one was diet. I was eating the wrong things. I was eating inflammatory things like dairy. Um, you know, lots of, you know, red meats and, 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 and those types, lots of sugar, processed sugar, processed foods. And as I moved more towards more of a plant rich diet, mm-hmm. um, not exclusively, I'll still eat some means of it helped a little bit. The other thing was exercise. So this was before I was doing any cardio. So think about you know, it. You used to hate to run.
0: You were not oh, a big I hated bagger. cardio. You, hate, you no, like biking. No. You hated cardio. I hated it. <laughs> you
1: wanted me to go and runs with you and hike something. I'm not doing that. And and so I I changed those two things and it helped it helped dramatically. But what really was the 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 the, the um, that helped me break through was the fast. I did a seven-day water only fast. Um, I did it under the guidance of one of my Olympic buddies who, who does a lot of this and researches a lot of it, Apollo Ono. And he's got a lot of information on his social networks about this. I got into Peter Atia, which I know, you know, and, and he's kind of, you know, one of the godfathers of fasting and magical things happen to my body. And, and you, you probably know about autophagy mm-hmm. where your cells start to repair themselves may i mean the, the body is amazing like if you just give it a break from food like human beings we eat too often and you know tens of thousands of years ago food was not available every you know three times a day right you made a big meal and then you know maybe you didn't kill the buffalo the next day and like right. you didn't eat the next day yeah. <laughs> so like fasting has been a normal part of society for such a such a long time and you know after you you know you fast and you start stop burning all the carbs you go into what's called ketosis and Mm -hmm. ketosis is when you start burning the fat. And by the way, the body loves to burn fat. Like, you know, it's a great source of energy for the brain. The brain thrives on burning fat, Mm -hmm. but it's uncomfortable for most. You get that keto headache, you know, your body's like, Whoa, what's going on? Like we're going into survival mode. But if you, you know, what I did is, you know, I just drank a lot of water. And then I got into autophagy, my damaged cells either killed off or, you know, created new ones and, and, and started repairing themselves. And then the mitochondria in the cells, which is the, kind of the energy creator of the cells, right. those, the weak mitochondria dies. Mm-hmm. So when you put your body through stress, and you can do it through hypoxia, meaning deprivation of oxygen. Yep. You can do it through cold tubs, you know, going in really cold, cold water. You can do it through water fasting. When you put, the, put pressure on the body, you, your weak mitochondria die. And that's a really good thing because they're replaced by brand new yeah. fighters, you know, like ready to <laughs> just, you know, and all these diseases like diabetes and cancer and all these things are, are, are a culmination of a lot of things, but in part, um, mitochondria damaged mitochondria that just doesn't sit on the couch and eat donuts all day. Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, I'm a big believer in fasting. I'm a big believer in, in constructive suffering, whether yeah. it be cold water or, you know, hypoxia or whatever. And, you know, again, this is another topic I'm passionate about. I'm not an expert about at all even close, but I, but I love learning
0: about it. Yeah. Well, and I think the other thing about it too, not only the learning about it, but, uh, and you may not be an expert. I'm certainly not an expert either, but you can feel the difference in your body when you go through and do it. So like, Night and day. whether it's, there's the seeing is believe, I mean, my dad's, a, he's doing, he's doing a week long right now. So he's in the, he's in the middle of his, nice. uh, he's probably like 72 hours in. So I got him drinking the Kool-Aid. So, Right on. Uh, <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Reach out. yeah. It's a bit of a, an emoji of some, you know, delicious looking food. Say, how you doing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. But I think it's, I think it's one of those things that, that definitely helps in the long run kind of helps you stay. Uh, at least for me, it certainly helps me kind of stay focused and, and stay on track. You know, it's, uh, it's, it's super important as you say that, that kind of health. So kind of back to the schedule. So seven to seven thirty to, uh, or seven to nine thirty. you are worried about the fitness, getting the endorphins going and then kind of blocking out that day. So, so every Sunday is kind of the time that, that you take to build out your week. And do you scratch things that are, are oh, yeah. going to stress you out? Or do you, do you try and attack the more difficult things first thing in the morning? You're like, okay nine 30, this is going to be the biggest pain of the ass of the day. Let's get this out of the way. Or, or how how do you kind of uh, approach that?
1: Yeah. So, well, I have a lot of help. Megan Lee is my executive admin has been with me for 10 years. So she knows me as well as I do. So she's actually the one, Hey, this is going to stress you out. You're like, Oh yeah, you're right. So that that's helpful. But, but if, you know, for anybody else, yes, Sunday, that's the day to take a look at your schedule. I think, you know, and, and look at Monday, look at Tuesday, look at Wednesday, look at Thursday, look at Friday and say no to things we got to learn how to say no to things. And that's not just like no to the, the. but we got to say no to our family members. Sometimes Like can't do that. Got to focus, got to do this. And saying no can be really hard because nobody wants to disappoint somebody. But in order to, to, to achieve balance in one's life or, or control over time, which is the hardest thing can do. Um, I think we all have to learn how to say no. Now, you know, I, I, my wife is giving birth in January, late December, early January. So I will be a father. Do I know what it's like to be a dad? No. And if anybody's listening, that is a dad is probably laughing at me right now saying, ha ha, just wait, buddy. You think Think 7.30 (laughs) to 9.30 is your time. Just wait. And and that might be true. And, and, and so, you know, there'll be new priorities, um, you know, entering my life and I'll have to recalibrate um, and kind of, you know, you know, be adaptable and that's cool. But yeah, right now that's, that's kind of, you know, my, um, that's me time, <laughs> seven 30, nine 30. That's me time.
0: Now uh, kind of building on, on top of that for, for people that are kind of whether they're getting started in their athletic career or they're in the middle of their athletic career, or they're trying to go into entrepreneurship or, or something like that, other than kind of the schedule and some of the things that we touched on, what would be a couple uh, major pieces of uh, advice for them?
1: Um, whatever goals that you're setting, they're not big enough. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like yeah. always, um, always push to create really big goals for yourself. Oftentimes we sell ourselves short and we put these governors on our ability that are self-imposed because oftentimes we're our toughest critic, you know, like mm-hmm. we, most of the time we are our toughest critic and sometimes our, you know, we're our, you know, smallest fan, like yeah. we're, we're hard on ourselves. And, and so set these goals really big. And then the way I like to look at embarking on whatever journey, whether it be athletic or entrepreneurial or whatever, I like to think of the analogy of climbing a big mountain. So think about Everest and, you know, when you reach the top of Everest, that's your goal. That's when you would accomplish your goal. Well, Everest has base camps. Everest doesn't, you know, you can't summit it overnight. It has, you know, death defying obstacles of mother nature. Lots of people get to base camp three and only and have to hike back to base camp two. And I think these analogies are true in life where we hit these setbacks. We fall, we stumble, we slide back down to base camp one. But if we always have a line of sight and we're always calibrating that path to the top of Everest for this example, um, I believe we're going to enter, we're going to get to our goals. Now it might not be the goal we set, but we're going to get to a goal that is, that is meaningful. Mm -hmm. And so that's the way I like to look at it. The other thing that I, I would encourage people to think about that I've had to learn in my life is there's this concept called treadmill goal setting. And it's this, this idea or notion that if I could just accomplish whatever it is, X, Y, or Z, whatever the goal, if I could just accomplish this, my life would be complete. And that's just not true. Like nobody reaches that goal and says, this is enough. Most of the time we reach that goal feels good. And then we set another goal. So we're on this kind of proverbial treadmill and that we're always setting these goals, accomplishing it. and never gives us the fulfillment that, that we need. And why I think that's important is because we should set goals for ourselves, so that when we reach them, we shouldn't think that they're gonna give us fulfillment or happiness. Mm-hmm. And on the flip side of that, we shouldn't look at our, our own lives and say, well, I'm unhappy um, because I didn't accomplish that goal. Mm-hmm. Um, I was an executive producer on The Way to Gold, uh, which is a documentary on, on HBO. We had Michael Phelps, Paulo Ono Sean White, uh, Bodie Miller. I mean, you go down the list of people
0: yeah, and
1: awesome. it was a documentary on mental health. And what was universally true, these are the most successful Olympians of all time, is that one, they all went through depression, different levels, some extreme, some some maybe more normal, and all of them have money and a trophy case full of medals. And I think the powerful message there for everybody, for society, is that money and trophies do not bring happiness. Everybody struggles. Everybody has a hard time. Everybody goes through moments of of, um, not being okay. And by normalizing that conversation, I think we disarm some people's anxiety around not feeling okay. If we know Michael Phelps goes through it, or if we know Michael Jordan also goes through it, if we know as a society, all human beings have these inevitable ups and downs, it normalizes it. And that won't solve depression, but but I think it'll help us take a step in the direction of doing so.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think one of those things that's, that's super interesting about that, just from like my own perspective as an athlete is I would, you know, it's just another step along the way or just chopping wood. And and that's not very sexy. Because <laughs> when you go through and you get that, you know, the the few times I was able to hit some of the goals, like a top five at nationals or something like that. And then at the end of the day, you're like, okay, I, I did that. i was really standing what? around, What's, uh, you know, which they go into, into the documentary. And it's very true. And I I think it definitely helps to, to normalize that situation, but I think it's also difficult. It's kind of one of those things you have to have to find out for yourself, you know? Mm Um, I know it was interesting, uh, when my wife a few years ago when she had won like selections and got to ski the deer Valley world cup and it's that big high. And then, you know, she's super excited. And after that, it's just, you're back at steamboat skiing runs. It's back to, back to the real world and it's back to just chopping wood and and making those kind of efforts and, and getting, trying to get better each and every day, but it is deflating.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it it can be deflating. And and that's, you know, very parallel to to what all, you know, the Olympians said in, in the way to go. It's like, Hey, I, I I thought my whole life that my life would be complete if I won an Olympic gold medal
0: Mm -hmm.
1: and I won an Olympic gold medal and then I won a second. Olympic gold medal, and then I won a third, and it was not enough. It, it was never enough, yeah. and it never completed my life. Mm-hmm. And in often, in, in in other you know cases, it actually made me more depressed, made me more lonely, mm-hmm. made made me you know question the meaning of life even more because I was so convinced that if I just won this thing, if I just did this one thing, my life would be complete, and it's and it's and it's not. Yeah. I think there's some powerful learnings in 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 that for all of us, especially yeah. as we is we map out our lives. I mean, you know, Stephen Long said he only thinks three days ahead. I, again, I, <laughs> I don't know what that would feel
0: like. He's short term. He, ke- he keeps it. Yeah. Short-term.
1: I think yeah. there's some wisdom to that and beauty to that, but like guys and, and gals like me, like I think more long-term and for, for us to have a perspective of like, Hey, these are important goals, but mm-hmm. ultimately at the end of the day, they're not going to change who we are. They're not going to bring this happiness and fulfillment that is going to be long lasting. Um, I think that's important because then we can find it in, in more holistic areas, like intrinsically motivating things, like learning,
0: yeah.
1: like building relationships, like helping other people. Those are three things that can actually have a long-term, sustaining impact on happiness, mm-hmm. and and purpose, and 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 uh, and meaning.
0: Now, not like I mean, kind of building upon that for you, because a lot of people do get set in their ways, and that is one of those interesting things—the hamster on the wheel—and you're kind of stuck in in this rut or, you know, mo- most people are set in their ways by what, 23, I think it is. And then it takes a lot of hard work to change those neurons around in your brain and a lot of focus and a lot of energy. So it happens at a very young age that you are set in your ways. So, I mean, for you, cause I know, I mean, there's been tremendous growth and, and changes there. And what is it that is really been able to kind of help you make those changes because they are so difficult to to make that transition
1: well it's another great question and another topic (laughs) i love and i'm passionate about and as i mentioned my dad's a psychologist so you know i think understanding this from a from a biological perspective or a neurological perspective is important when we're born, our prefrontal cortex, which is right here in the front of, of the brain, mm-hmm. it's kind of the CEO of the brain. It gives us our self-awareness, kind of, you know, our decision-making pattern. It's mush. So we just we, we just do whatever we think we need to do. We just learn as much as we and, – and as you get older, that prefrontal cortex gets harder and harder and harder and more rigid and rigid and rigid. I don't know if it happens at 23 i'm not entirely sure when it happens but probably at different ages for different people but i will say for you know anybody who's entered into their 30s or later 30s or beyond that mm-hmm. you feel it you feel it you feel yourself getting rigid you feel yourself getting stuck in your ways you have to fight to be open-minded more so than you used to mm-hmm. now there's you know um, psilocybin is a way for folks that are stuck um, that are, you know, being used in very interesting clinical settings. Um, you know, psilocybin or magic mushrooms used to be kind of a class four drug, which is the, the worst part of the drugs. Now we're starting to see it get legalized uh, across the country. And we're also seeing, you know, academic institutions and hospitals like John Hopkins come out with really staggering findings of, uh, of what's happening with PTSD, you know, people coming back from the military with PTSD, people with extreme depression and people who have a, um, a death sentence through cancer or, or some bad disease. And the the re- what psilocybin does is it takes that rigid, you know, prefrontal cortex or these neuro passageways that we've created from a young age and it turns into mush again. And it parts of the brain that don't normally communicate with one another are now communicating with one another. And I'm talking about in a clinical setting, I'm not talking about going to a rave and doing mushrooms. I'm, I'm talking in a clinical setting, like right, setting right. setting is everything. When you look at the clinical data for psilocybin, but remarkable like feedback from, from people who are scared to death, 10 out of 10, who just found out they have two, two months to live, who, who do one dose of psilocybin in a clinical setting and are awakened with no fear of death. Not like, like none, like they know lo- and, and people coming back from the military and major PTSD and then reporting it, it just going away uh, or, you know, very clinically depressed and, and finding relief in these things. And oftentimes as a society, we get, you know, we're skeptical of panaceas mm-hmm. or in other words, things that just cure everything. Right. So right. I don't think this is a panacea. I don't think anybody does. But there's, there's new research and focus on a new class of substances that, that aren't ph- pharmacological based, they're, they come from the ground, mm-hmm. that have really interesting possibilities on our ability to continue to stay open-minded and build new neural passageways and connections in our brain as we age and, you know, deal with really serious conditions like depression, PTSD, and, you know, in a fear of, uh, of death.
0: Yeah, it's, it's super, super fascinating to kind of see how that world's, uh, opening up and changed in the last, you know, just couple of years, you know, I'm almost, I'm like, you know, 11 years into the psych degree, skiing kind of got in the way, but I'm almost there, dude. So I'll be with, you know, Larry and I'll be able to talk shop Amazing. We'll be able to talk oh, shop. So
1: awesome. <laughs> so, cool, man.
0: so no, it's, uh, it's, it's super interesting and in how, how much that, uh, it's changing every day, you know, the science technology kind of brings, um. A lot of uh, a lot of interesting things that'll happen in the future. Hopefully, well, dude, uh, you know, I was as I was thinking about it uh, before you came on. It's been I first met. What uh, I was just a little camper, Camp Revolution, when I was ten. Had to have been
1: eight, seven or eight years. I old. was
0: I was young. I was a young, yeah. young, young pup back then. And then, well, uh, you Abby know, brought
1: there. you up there. We did some Costco runs. You know, yeah, we
0: of course, you know, yeah. yeah. And then Dad, Dad became the agent, and it's been uh, really just. Um, want to say thank you for, for all the years, all the time. I mean, since I was nine, 10 years old, whatever it was, allow me to tag along, follow you around, whether we would go, you know, go see at a few buffs game. I got to find the, for the next one we do, I got to find the buffs Jersey. Cause I know I have the, the the mogul band before the ncaa would let you put uh because you were playing so you couldn't put bloom on the back right that damn right. ncaa <laughs> <laughs> i know but just you know through all the years and and uh world championships olympics going to watch and kind of cheer you on to uh to go into um you know my first noram tour in 2009 you were kind of, da- you know, at Killington there. And then we both had a shitty result at, at, at Nationals in 2000. You know, it's not, not the way I remember sitting there, like, at, at, a, at a pub. I was too young to, to drink at the time, but we were just sitting out on the patio in the sun, like, oof. This, this <laughs> is the, yeah, 2009 was not, a, you know, uh, what was, we were in Squaw, I think, right? Yeah, Squaw Valley. <laughs> uh, exactly and then, right. and yep. then coming back around to, to go and to watch you um, make it into the Hall of Fame. Hall of Fame acceptance and, and going down and seeing some tears in the old man's eyes and, and mm-hmm. going through that, that whole experience. And, and the journey has just uh, really been awesome, man. So thank you so much for for taking the time. I, I really do appreciate it. And hopefully next time we'll be able to do this uh, in person once I kind of get the, the studio up and running. So thank you.
1: Yeah, man, it's, it's my pleasure. You, you know, you, you will always be family to me. Your whole family will always be family to me. I'm indebted to your dad and, and Debbie and, and, uh, the whole crew. So always a pleasure to see you. And, um, thanks for, uh, thanks for the conversation. We covered a lot of ground, a lot of topics we covered.
0: And we didn't even get into bum skiing, dude. <laughs> <laughs> we haven't even gotten there yet or some of the, so that we'll save that for the next one, but thanks a lot. I know, I know you're a busy man and, uh, really appreciate it, dude. See you buddy. Bye. Thanks. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Thanks a lot for listening in. I really appreciate it. Please make sure to take the time to like, share, and subscribe our show. And also you can follow along on Instagram. Thanks.